This podcast was recorded on the date indicated with the link. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide updates or changes. All right, everybody, welcome to the latest episode of The Sherman Show. Today is August 2nd, 2022. I'm Jeff Sherman, along with my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And today we are on the YouTube once again, youtube.com backslash Double Line Capital. If you're listening to this audio and you want to see Sam's pretty smiling face today, and you can also catch a glimpse of today's guest. And our guest today is none other than David Wong from CIBC Asset Management. David is a managing director in the Portfolio Solutions Group uh, for manager research and investment oversight. David, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Good to see you. Yes, yeah. so Sam and I know you as you lead the investment team that's responsible for you know, researching, recommending, monitoring both the asset allocation as well as manager selection within CIBC Asset Management. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about our listeners who may not be familiar with CIBC Asset Management and your role within the organization and how you fit in the overall organization as well. Yeah, uh, so thanks again for having me on the program. Real, real pleasure to be on it. I'm, uh, I'm a happy listener. I always like uh, long form uh, sort of discussions on on investment topics. So appreciate the work you guys do, and and uh, really like Sam's uh, his hey hey's. I might have to co-opt that uh, as an introduction for uh, for myself in the future meetings. Yeah, um, well, one of our colleagues stepped in on Sam's other podcast that he's moonlighting on, and again been cheated on me for about two years with. And that person dropped a hey 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 to try to do that, <laughs> and Sam retorted quickly that it sounded more like Fat Albert. So um, right. you know, I think he found. I think Sam has a sweet spot there, and I think it's trademarked already. So uh, it's too bad. That's too bad. Um, so at a high level, uh, CIBC Asset Management, we're a $200 billion asset management firm uh, here based in uh, Toronto and Montreal. Uh, and so $200 billion makes us one of the uh, largest asset managers here in Canada. Uh, we are owned by CIBC, uh, the bank, uh, Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce, uh, which is an institution that has 150 years of history. Uh, and uh, for U.S. listeners that uh, might not be aware of the Canadian banking sector, because it's a little little different than the U.S. banking uh, industry. We do have uh, more of a bunch up of, uh, of our banks here. We've got what's colloquially called the big five banks here in Canada, uh, which uh, has something like 80% market share. Uh, and you compare that to kind of how fractured the U.S. banking market is. Uh, it, so you know, a lot of that traces back to the origins of our, of our, uh, of our banking uh, uh, founding fathers, very Scottish in, uh, in, in roots. So we had a branching system early on, whereas the U.S. system uh, resisted branching, I think, for a Canadian. It's interesting to hear that branch banking didn't actually—it wasn't actually a thing across state lines until fairly recently in uh, in modern history. Um, so, uh, just an aside on that front. Um, but thinking about kind of the the, the expanse of our bank, um, it really allows you know an asset manager uh, to uh, to to make use of a lot of great resources and, and have access to, uh, to a large client base across uh, the, the, the country. Um, so we've got 
45,000 employees uh, of our bank, uh, 11 million customers and over a thousand different uh, banking centers. Um, so a very large institution, uh, great hardworking people. It's great to be surrounded by uh, the, 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 the people that work uh, uh, side by side to be client focused every single day. Um, CIBC asset management specifically, uh, if we can drill down to, to that uh, level, uh, we've been in existence now for the past 50 years. So we got our start back in 1972 uh, as, uh, as another firm. It was, it was called Tal Global Asset Management uh, as our, uh, in, in our early years. Uh, and it was a very institutional focused pension plan uh, manager uh, that our bank acquired uh, an initial stake in kind of the mid 90s and completed the acquisition uh, kind of in the early, early 2000s. And so the, the foundations of our organization, we've got this institutional backing, we have capabilities across uh, equities and fixed income, uh, as well as multi-asset and currency. Uh, and we serve clients, uh, you know, whether they're, they're uh, personal and business banking clients, otherwise known as retail banking clients, uh, high net worth clients through a variety of different channels, including family office, bank family office, uh, and institutional clients as well, which is, um, Obviously, a high hurdle, uh, right? There's lots of uh, lots of uh, hurdles to overcome when you're when you're winning institutional mandates. So I think that's a big stamp of approval of our of our internal capability. Um, and then to supplement that, uh, and more maybe to my role, uh, we've got a manager research team that uh, I've got the honor of overseeing. It's part of uh, that mouthful of uh, of job title that you that you put out there: portfolio solutions manager research and investment oversight. So the manager research component um, for for the audience that might not be aware of the, even the concept of manager research that exists in our industry, uh, it's the idea that you could have a, a team of, uh, of investors uh, go out and analyze uh, managers uh, around the globe, uh, and we do this with our own internal strategies as well, and, uh, and pick them apart and try to find differentiation uh, and ways to, uh, to find the best uh, solutions for clients uh, that, uh, that best fulfill their, their investment objectives. Um, and so the portfolio solutions aspect of my role really sees me uh, kind of being the quarterback in many ways across all those great capabilities and just thinking about how to, you know, piece all those things together and, uh, and turn that into, uh, into uh, managed solutions or portfolio solutions that can, that can help our clients better achieve their ambitions. Yeah, I think uh, I, I want to I want to focus on that part in the portfolio solutions side because I think that's what a lot of people are looking for these days. But I think there's one unique factor about the Canadian banking system that I think you neglected to mention, and that is King Street in Toronto. Uh, they're all lined on King Street, and I feel like they're within two blocks of one another. Is, is that is that an appropriate assessment? That's a fair assessment, maybe a slight refinement, because some of them are on King Street. Uh, Bay Street would be the uh, the main street. That's our version of Wall Street. So, okay. um, yeah, so it's it's uh, it's it's primarily Bay Street, but the intersect of King and Bay would certainly King be King and Bay. Uh, okay, yes, yes, the corner where a lot of banks are. See, that's why I needed you to set me straight to there too. I, I guess I have the Queen, the King in there, and I forget it's Bay that is the main place too, though. Um, Actually, and, so and so, I should I should put a plug in there for because we have a new headquarters on Bay Street, so we've moved further from. Uh, from King Street. So CIBC Square is an exciting new uh, kind of building that we have uh, downtown Toronto. It's right on right on Bay Street, but much yeah. farther from, from King Street. So there's this new vibe going on in Toronto, kind of well south of King. <laughs> okay, awesome. Well, uh, the next time we get up there, we're going to have to show me around. And so, um, you know, let's talk about portfolio solutions and like 
how do you think about that? Do you do you go into like the modern portfolio theory framework? Are you looking for things that you determine seem to be like a hole in your lineup? Uh, are you think are you trying to think about you know kind of the next step of what's going on in financial markets, or is it really driven by in like financial advisor demand, which is helping you with those recommendations as well? So how do you think about the confluence of those four kind of attributes there? Yeah, so it's a, it's a combination of uh, of all of those things. You could, you know, take uh, a portfolio solutioning uh, with a very kind of scientific sheen and and try to uh, over optimize things. Uh, but that you know that tends to work in a back test, but not not in the future. So you need to have some creativity to to certainly think about uh, what uh, where the puck might go, uh, as as uh, Wayne Gretzky once said. Um, so we take um, I think a, a very process oriented approach to things in general. Um, so we we uh, we will set out kind of long-term forecasts as a starting point for all uh, of our managed solutions or portfolio solutions. We think about um, uh, all asset classes around the globe certainly have access to that uh, in our toolkit, whether it's internal or external, uh, in terms of the management of it. Um, and um, and so we model out those returns. We have a, a separate team that does that uh, that uh, that looks to uh, set up long-term strategic asset allocation. Uh, uh, forecasts. Uh, and, you know, from that, there's a bit of an optimization, bit of an art, bit of a knowledge and awareness of, of, uh, of the global markets in terms of uh, the market cap weightings out there, what's the opportunity set. Um, and then we will supplement that with, uh, you know, kind of that subjective uh, assessment of, of where the puck might go. Um, and so to that end, you know, to your, to your point on uh, talking to clients, is there, are there holes to fill uh, in our various portfolio solutions, I think maybe one of the areas that uh, that might be further explored in the future would be in the realm of alternatives, as an example, uh, where you know our our regulatory rules in Canada have been a little bit tighter than what you have in the U.S. for a very long time. Uh, the 40 Act would be kind of mutual fund rules in the U.S. Uh, here, it's National Instruments 81102, uh, and there's been, recently been revisions that allow for a little bit more latitude. Um, in that, so we haven't quite seen, you know, the full the full use of alternatives yet in uh, in managed solutions programs uh, or just investment uh, investment portfolios in general here in Canada. But I think that uh, that certainly will will uh, will be a part of the future. So there has been a big push here in the U.S. of you know kind of straddling that fence between what people would call the traditional space versus alternatives and. Alternative seems to be a catch-all for anything that's not traditional, I guess, by definition of the word. But as you, we've looked at the different structures in the U.S., we've seen kind of an evolution of that 40 Act. You've seen like the open-ended mutual fund, the daily liquidity vehicle. You've seen the more extreme version, the closed-end mutual fund, which is a lockup vehicle for, you know, it used to be an infinite amount of time. Now they're finite life deals. Um, and we've seen the hybrid get introduced, too, now where... There's something in the U.S. what's been very popular with investors called the interval fund, right? Where you know there, there's the ability to subscribe uh, very frequently, but the redemptions are a little more infrequent, which allows that that hybrid world. So when you think about like this introduction potentially of alternatives, do you think about it as the asset class structure? Is it due to liquidity? How do you kind of uh, as kind of square that circle? As I heard Sam say the other day on that other podcast. Yeah, so this is where it gets into into uh, modern portfolio theory a little bit, right? You're thinking about the utility of 
of what you're introducing. And so it's either uh, enhancing returns or, or reducing risk. Uh, and it, I guess the interplay of the assets uh, really being important in that in that discussion. Um, and so those are the uh, those are the lenses that we use when we're looking at different uh, different vehicles. Um, so traditional versus alternative, I'd say, you know, there's a decoupling of beta, certainly from uh, uh, when I think about some alternatives, certainly hedge funds would fall in that category. Um, and then you have a whole separate category where just even getting access to the asset class itself is alter, you know, there's alternative methods to do that. So private asset classes uh, don't, don't uh, fit into traditional asset classes, uh, asset class categories neatly because of liquidity, because of uh, difficulty of access and that sort of thing. Um, so, uh, so we view it from all those different lenses and, um, you know, when we're thinking about how to, how to, uh, or what to include in portfolios, I think it's, it's really a utility, a utility based, uh, type of, uh, type of discussion. Liquidity matters. Of course it matters. Uh, you, you don't want to mismatch for sure. Uh, inside of a managed solutions, uh, a program, I think, um, uh, you know, th this is, this is something that we're giving a lot of thought to, right. Is how you manage daily liquidity. Uh, funds with this uh, idea of, of, of lower liquidity in certain components of it. And uh, right now, the regulatory bodies do allow that uh, up to 10%. Um, and I think that can be potentially a strategic advantage, I think, for, for, uh, for um, those that get there first and do it in a way that, that's thoughtful and, and uh, has the most utility. Well, you mentioned beta as being the kind of definition of how you think about it, whether it being traditional or alternative, right? And so how do you think about the, the more private markets uh, when it comes to beta? And where I'm going with this is that there's always the joke. And I, I ran into a client that said, well, you know, unlike your, your fixed income fund, mine's not down for the quarter. And I was like, well, what do you own? <laughs> like the whole, the whole area is that he's like, oh, it's all private. I was yeah. like, oh, so it hasn't yeah. gotten marked yet, right? So that's the old joke is that, you know, it, it, because it's a little slower moving. So how do you think about the beta component of private markets? And like, do you do you even worry about it? Or is it that, you know, that it's not marked contemporaneously and so that lead lag allows you to kind of think about a little more diversification? How, how do you guys put that in a framework of thinking about these portfolio solutions? Very, a very topical question, given uh, given the year we've had and and uh, how the marks have uh, followed in, uh, or not followed, I suppose, in the private space. Um, look, so I, I got some statements recently, man. I'm yeah. crushing it at the equity market. My, my, my private equity, my VC stuff, <laughs> man, I mean, it's flat for the year. I mean, it's killing it. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. So look, I, the way I think about the beta there is, you know, for a lot of clients, uh, like institutional clients, for example, uh, it might be it might be a feature, not a not a bug, right? Of of uh, of of you know unmarked volatility, and actually for for many investors, in fact, I think you can view it as a feature because uh, if behavioral finance is is a hurdle to overcome, then uh, taking taking the uh, irrationality of the market out of the valuations can be helpful. Um, where I guess it gets tricky is when you have such wide kind of separation between. Uh, you know, what you're seeing is kind of private valuations versus public valuations. You look at the REIT space and uh, for example, you know, down something like 20%, uh, whereas private real estate can be, uh, can be marked up in some cases, um, you know, the way we overcome that. And so this circles back to kind of my manager research team. We really have to look carefully at the details, um, ask the tough questions on valuation, uh, but also uh, recognize that, uh, you know, there's a there's a bit of a subjective component to some of that valuation as well. Uh, certainly, you want to make sure that 
that uh, there's an auditing process and all everything else checks out. And so that's actually a very important feature of, of manager research, uh, even if it's not adding quote unquote alpha value, it's, it's the due diligence value of, of making sure that, uh, that there's a trust uh, in these investments. And I think that's, that's gonna be the, the nut to crack really is, is uh, before you have widespread kind of adoption of, of uh, alternatives and, and privates and things like that is gaining that trust. Uh, it's not so much about the returns, it really is about kind of believing uh, the returns and, and believing the uh, the actors involved. So I think that's, you know, kind of the next frontier probably for from a retail investor uh, standpoint. Well, you'd mentioned the phrase, it's a feature, not a bug. And then you mentioned behavioral finance. Are, are you referring to the idea that potentially you can kind of save investors from themselves? That is not selling at the bottom in markets or what do you mean by that phrase? Yeah, that's it. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Um, I think we're you know, we're system one dominated, meaning, uh, you know, our brains are wired to uh, avoid danger whenever, whenever possible. Uh, and, uh, you know, fear and greed are, are powerful forces. So uh, anytime something uh, you have about a volatility, you can see it, you, you guys certainly see it probably in your client questions. Um, there are, there are serious questions around, uh, uh, you know, things that in theory, uh, shouldn't even come up, right? Because if you're a long term investor, um, you, you've bought into volatility, right? You've you right. bought into it and you know it's going to happen. Uh, but when you face it, it's a whole different thing. It's the Mike Tyson quote of everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face, right? So um, I, I think private equity or private assets in general can take some of that effect away from uh, uh, from investors. And so, um, yeah, it's 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 definitely a feature in that sense. If you can if you can at least lag the volatility, I know we you know 2020 is a good case study. Uh, where uh, private markets weren't necessarily marked down in, in Q1, uh, whereas public markets were heavily marked down. But by the time you reach Q2, public markets were you know, way up, but private markets were kind of you know, right down the middle a little bit, or maybe even slightly flat to slightly negative, uh, but took all the volatility out. And so you, you look at the two side-by-side six-month returns, you probably had something much closer. And so um, to the extent that, uh, that things turn around, I think that lag in valuation can really, uh, really benefit investors. David, I wanted to bring it back to the uh, the research, the manager research side of things. And both Sherman and I have been on the receiving end of you and your team uh, with regards to your your initial uh, due diligence on us. And I just remember it being an extremely uh, rigorous process, which I was very impressed with. But uh, you know, part of that offering your your solutions, your portfolio solutions, is selecting those right managers in order to right run and manage those strategies that you deem appropriate within those asset classes. So. Given your experience, is there anything you could perhaps impart on our listeners? Perhaps, you know, I know you do it from an institutional end, but, you know, with some of the carryovers that might be important for retail investors and thinking about various managers that run the, uh, you know, the, the investments that the investment asset classes or, you know, products that they might want to do. What, what kind of things would you look at when considering a manager? Um, and just as importantly, what are some of the things that investors should, you know, may get wrong in picking you know, managers, what are their characteristics that they should be avoiding as well as, you know, looking for? Yeah. How much time do we have? This is, <laughs> this could be a long <laughs> one, right? I, like this is stuff that uh, I've thought about for over 20 years now in my, uh, in my career. And, and certainly uh, our team does as well. Um, I like, I think it's, it's more effortful than people uh, want to believe. I think that's uh, first and foremost, I think there's, you know, in our industry, what's called the four P's of, of manager research, which is, uh, 
which is a philosophy, people, process, past performance, all those things uh, do matter, but it depends on how you approach those things. So I could say, you know, those are the categories. Now just uh, go out and, and find uh, your view on, on those four different things uh, for a manager. Um, but if you're taking kind of a checkbox approach to it, you kind of, uh, you're, you're, you're going to be very descriptive, but you're not going to be predictive, which I think is probably the intent of uh, going out and trying to do some research. Um, and so this simple thing I would look at, like things like uh, people, right? If you're just relying on on an RFP type of approach, uh, you know, what do you, what are most people going to look at? They're going to look at credentials. They're going to look at uh, academic background, experience, number of years uh, of work experience, that sort of thing, intellect, which I know all those things matter, but only to a certain point. And once you get past that point, there's really no marginal return to it. Um, so it's not really a differentiator anymore. Uh, and so what I, what I think is more important is looking for humility from, uh, from uh, your manager. Um, and that open-mindedness to, uh, uh, to, to know when they're wrong, because from, from recognizing that there's a lot of learning that, that can take place and, um, and that's impossible to get out of, you know, uh, an internet search or an RFP or things like that. So you really kind of have to, have to talk to the manager. Um, uh, so think about every, uh, you know, every RFP response you've seen on cell discipline or every pitch book you've ever seen where, where cell discipline is discussed, it's going to be, you know, one of three things. It's going to be, uh, you know, price target was realized, or uh, a better idea came along, or the thesis was disrupted, right? So nowhere in there is there, uh, I, I'm wrong, because I'm wrong a lot of the times. As a forecaster of markets, I'm going to be wrong, probably well, close to 50% of the time. There's makes for lousy marketing copy for sure. Uh, but and that's probably why you don't see that. But by talking to managers, you can understand whether or not there's that humility uh, kind of embedded in that process. And the, the, the thing I point to often, so this doesn't, you don't have to meet a manager to do this. You could read their books if they happen to write books. Peter Lynch uh, wrote, uh, wrote a best-selling book on this, One Up on Wall Street, which was one of my favorite books early on in my career. And, uh, you know, a few would argue that, uh, that, he's, that he's not one of the greatest investors of our time. Uh, and uh, in his book, he talks about the things that made him a good investor, obviously, but he also talks about the mistakes he made. But it's not the mistakes he made of commission. It wasn't, you know, here I bought this stock and it was a dog and it was down, you know, 80%. It was, uh, he had two pages in his book devoted to all the stocks that he could have bought that he didn't bought that were 10 baggers, the things that he was looking to buy. And um, just the humility to actually spell that all, all, all out, you know, to find that information first and foremost, and then to share that with an audience to, just to show how fallible uh, even, even one of the greatest investors in the world can be. I think is uh, is is definitely something we're looking for that that humility aspect. Um, and so, what do investors get wrong when they're looking for managers? Uh, I think it's it's looking for confidence, right? I think that's that's how we earn trust of people. It's looking for overconfidence and and believing kind of the the more um, you know the more loud the forecast, the more believable it is. That type of approach. Um, I think that's that's uh, you know kind of counter to what we'd be looking for from a from a manager who's supposed to be more open minded. And uh, probably the biggest thing people get wrong would be looking at past performance uh, and all of its variants. Uh, and uh, you know for for uh, uh, certain certain uh, 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 metrics that feel like it's the right answer. There's this concept called attribute substitution. Like the real question we should be asking is, am I picking a good forecaster? Uh, but that's a really, really hard question to answer because you have to do a lot of groundwork to, to understand that. Um, and so really that's substituted by things like, uh, what's this manager's active share? 
for example, uh, which I know is uh, kind of died down a little bit, but um, there was a time there where everybody wanted managers with high active share uh, because you know uh, if you don't if you don't have different uh, if you don't look different than your benchmark, you can't beat the benchmark. Uh, that completely misses the point. It's like saying if you don't take shots on net as an NHL team, you can't score goals. But what if your team is you know, stocked with toddlers? If there's no skill in the first place, you're not going to score any goals, no matter how many shots you take on net. So you have to have skill kind of as the uh, founding principle. And active share is you know, almost irrelevant. Um, R-square is another one that people throw out there. You know, if you, if you, uh, it's the, it's the you know, how much coefficient of determination does your portfolio have with the benchmark? Um, and people want to see it be low. First of all, it means you're not invested in your asset class if it's too low. Uh, and a simple thought experiment, if you, if you take 100 basis points and add it to the benchmark return for every single month, for as long as you want, uh, guess what your R-square is going to be? It's going to be 100%. 100%, exactly. So a simple thought experiment will tell you that, uh, you know, how much does being active versus your benchmark matter to beating the benchmark? Very, very little. Uh, so it's classic system one at work. It's, you know, answering a different different, more difficult question with a much simpler uh, question and, and being misled by that. Well, so on that front too, when you're thinking about managers too, and I heard you say something about, you know, you want to be vocal and have a position, but, you know, not too much to where, you know, it's overconfidence. And so how, how do you, how do you kind of, you know, manage that with, you want someone to be active, you know, you want to have this kind of lower R squared, but potentially, you know, be in the realm of the benchmark. Like, how do you think about that in this whole world of where people have been shying away of active because it's specifically in the US on equity, for instance, the, the benchmarks have done so well, right? Some people, yeah. we've had guests on here where we talked about being momentum and the likes and just, you know, this the, 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 the larger companies have kind of dominated in terms of earnings growth as well. So how do you put all this together? And when you're thinking about selecting managers, do you like to have a smattering of the concentrated, kind of the people who take the big bets, the low R squared, you know, they're gonna have a high tracking error or however you wanna measure that and measure that with some people that are more diversified. Do you think of it as an active passive kind of blend? You know, what is your current thinking on, on those type of mixes today? Yeah, uh, really, really good question. I think. I mean, if you really want to get low on R square, you're talking about a hedge fund, right? There, yeah. we, we have like zero market exposure and and hopefully a positive return. Right. Uh, but beta can be a powerful force, so it's hard to bet against that uh, as well. Um, I, like I think what we're really looking for is is the forecast at the end of the day, whether it's a traditional manager or an uh, or a or a hedge fund uh, or even a private uh, uh, asset class for that matter. I think if you know, investing is in some ways trying to know a little bit more about the future than everybody else. Um, and so that's that's the key ingredient for us. That kind of keeps us grounded. And if we find that, uh, and it happens to be a you know kind of low R square manager, and we have to balance that tracking here in our portfolio, we'll we'll look to do that. We um, you know for for uh, for some of our portfolios, you could think of uh, you know kind of factor neutrality as being a, a kind of a blend of different manager styles, uh, so that you kind of take that noisiness of is momentum going to be in favor or value going to be in favor or growth going to be in favor. Um, you can, you can take that noisiness out if all you want is the residual return of a good kind of forecasting uh, stock picker. Um, unfortunately, that's also a very expensive way to kind of get beta in your portfolio as well, because you wind up paying full freight for active. Um, so I think what we've been working on really has been a bit of a hybrid version of that where it's core plus satellite. 
uh, where we want you know most of our portfolio to be to be focused on the things that are that investors should have uh, as just good hygiene for investing for the long term. So stay diversified in your portfolio, stay focused on the long term, um, and uh, and then with you know a component of your portfolio, you might want to have a bit of a satellite exposure that that's going to be a little bit noisier uh, and maybe prone to some of those, you know, uh, beta effects, whatever strategy you might be invested in, it might be out of favor, but over the long run, if you, if you can believe in the investment philosophy, I think that um, uh, that can be certainly beneficial to a portfolio. And, you know, so I think about, you know, leaning into say quality, uh, quality growth type approaches of, of equity mandates. That's a very popular uh, style of investing, um, but uh, it's believable, right? Because you, you're talking about buying companies that have higher returns on equity, um, and that hopefully can persist longer than the market's forecast. And the market being, you know, quite short-term focused, whether it's next quarter's earnings or the next, you know, year or two, uh, they're not looking out seven years to see if a company's truly special enough to kind of defy, defy the laws of uh, of capitalism and have that ROE be higher than the cost of capital for, you know, much longer than anybody would uh, would estimate. So. Um, that's probably a strategy that would be worthwhile kind of looking into from a from a satellite standpoint. Okay. So putting that all together, David, uh, you, you're talking about a little bit of uh, having a longer term view on your investment portfolios or investors should have it, you know, that type of uh, view and you know, certainly diversified. Bringing it all together, how are you thinking about uh, asset allocation today but, you know, for, for CBI? CIBC uh, asset management right now in the managed solutions programs. Are there tilts that you're taking on? Are you, how are you thinking about the, you know, there's a myriad of geopolitical risks, you know, let, let alone economic risks that investors have to contend with right now. So yeah. how are you positioning for all of that? Uh, very carefully. <laughs> there's lots of landmines <laughs> out there. Um, you know, the temptation is to, is to do, do something, right? There's an activity bias uh, when you see the volatility that we're seeing in the market. You know, if you told uh, people what the setup was going to be in, in the month of July, uh, you know, the Bank of Canada hike rates uh, had a surprise, you know, 100 basis point hike. It was, it was uh, far, far higher than people expected. Um, you know, the, 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 the Federal Reserve has stayed on its, on its course. Uh, uh, and, um, you know, we're already seeing the market kind of fading. And so you'd, you'd look at that setup and you'd say, OK, like, how are the equity markets going to do in this month or how are the bond markets going to do in this month? And uh, we've had a rip-roaring July, uh, which is kind of defies uh, maybe some of the expectations that you'd have with that kind of a backdrop. Look at look at 2020. Uh, if somebody you know uh, told you in December of 2019, hey, we're going to ent enter a, a global pandemic, and it's going to be horrific, and uh, we're going to be doing things that we've never done before uh, in our lifetime, certainly. Uh, 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 how would you like to invest? Through that environment, I think a lot of people would have said, "Well, uh, let's just go into cash because that there's a lot of uncertainty there," um, and that's kind of the point. There's uncertainty, uh, meaning we don't know exactly what's going to happen, right? So we 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 try to be measured. I talked about kind of the long-term uh, strategic asset allocation process that we have. We try to estimate longer-term returns, and we, you know, it's the differentials that matter uh, when you think about kind of uh, different growth rates for markets and different valuation starting points for markets and different dividend starting rates for markets. Um, those things can can keep you a little bit more grounded into in terms of what you think asset allocation uh, could and should be. And then certainly when there's new news, uh, you have to ask yourself whether it's signal or whether it's noise. And so we do have a a, a tactical asset allocation team, uh, a very a very talented team there that uh, that takes all the inputs uh, or uh, all the uh, all the all the news flow and translates that into tactical asset allocation uh, shifts. Uh, I will say this year it's a little bit different. 
because we happen to be going through a strategic asset allocation shift as well. Uh, so interestingly, uh, you know, I think we're going to get some pretty good entry points also because we're moving a little bit more into equity um, and, uh, you know, picking our spots as well. So things like U.S. equity, which has grown substantially in terms of the market cap exposure in the global markets. Um, I, I guess you could say stealthily, but probably not. If you've been paying attention to the performance, every, people should be aware that it's, that it's grown a lot. Um, but it makes up something like 70% of the global market today, the U.S. equity market does in, in the benchmarks, uh, in the developed market benchmark. Um, so uh, we've been kind of leaning towards um, uh, uh, the specialness of the U.S. market a little bit, leaning towards equities in general, uh, uh, you know, the equity risk premium being a very powerful force. Uh, so we want to make sure that we have appropriate exposure there. At the same time, uh, we're, not, uh, we're not ignoring kind of what's going on in the market. So I would say we've been doing that very, very carefully, which is kind of disrupted uh, uh, or uh, not disrupted, I guess we are taking a tactical call at this point because uh, you know, relative to our new strategic asset allocation, we're doing it carefully. Uh, so in many ways we are uh, uh, in, a, in a bit of a defensive mode uh, when, you, when, you, uh, when you look at it in, uh, uh, holistically. So David, you, you look at a lot of managers globally and you sit from the seat too of having a big base in Canada, but you're very familiar with the US markets too. And a lot of our listeners sit down here in the US. And so what would be one kind of differentiated approach you think that potentially Canadian investors do differently? You know, again, I guess that's what differentiated means, but they do differently from the US investors. And what potentially could our US investors learn from that framework that the Canadians tend to use? Ah. And if I generalize there by saying all Canadians do it, I apologize, but you, you kind of get where <laughs> I'm trying to go here. Is there, so, is there a lesson that potentially a US investor could learn from looking at investors in different seats? Yeah, let me, let me think about that a little bit. I, like, I think, I mean, we're, we're uh, just as prone to home country bias as anybody uh, out there. I guess in our case, it would, um, uh, it would be more meaningful than in the US markets where uh, the US market is such a big part of the global uh, capital market. So um, uh, if anything, that I think introduces uh, diversification. So you should invest more in Canadian stocks. Maybe that's uh, one of the lessons. Um, uh, but in all seriousness, I think we, we tend to be more conservative, uh, tend to be uh, more careful in, in uh, kind of new trends. Um, so certain things like hedge funds certainly have been slower to pick up in Canada, which has not been a bad thing over the last decade when you look at kind of the uh, the results of, uh, of you know, tr traditional beta versus hedge funds, uh, risk unadjusted, of course, um, you know, uh, investors have kind of been okay uh, being more conservative and, and not rushing into things and, and being a little bit more analytical. And I talked about kind of the foundations of our banking system and, and really looking to banks for leadership on a lot of these things. I think that's actually helpful. Um, you know, we, we, we saw it in 2008 with, uh, with the housing uh, market collapse in the US that didn't really happen in Canada at all. Um, so I think just by nature, I think Canadians tend to be more conservative. And I think that reflects also into, the, uh, into our investment uh, portfolios as well. Um, so the lesson necessarily isn't necessarily be more conservative. I think it's just be more uh, thoughtful in kind of what you, what you introduce into portfolios and, and, and thoughtful about risk taking. Okay. All right. Well, I think that's helpful too. Uh, I mean, again, uh, the old adage is don't confuse the bull market with skill, right? So, right. you know, people think they're risk takers and then all of a sudden, you know, you, you have some correction in markets and 
people are saying, well, what was I thinking, right? Uh, or, you know, the dollar amounts get larger that you're putting into these areas later in the cycle. So uh, I think that's very helpful. So, so David, uh, before we let you go to where do you, uh, you know, where can our listeners get in touch with you, get in touch with what CIBC does? What's the best way so they can tap into some of these thinkings that you have and what you put out there? Yeah, there's some great thought leadership on our website, on the CIBC Asset Management website. So I'd encourage uh, listeners to get on there. Um, and then uh, for me personally, LinkedIn uh, is, is the only social uh, uh, platform that I'm on. Uh, so if people want to uh, to reach out there, I'm happy to, uh, to, to talk. Okay, excellent, David. So thanks again. Um, again, this is David Wong from CIBC. So you can find him on the LinkedIn as well. And uh, we really enjoyed this today, David. But before we let you go, I got to introduce you to Sam's favorite part of the show. So, Sam. All right, David. And that favorite part of the show is called Sherman Says. It's where I will offer a series of alternating prompts between you and Sherman, to which I look to elicit a top of mind response that's concise. Uh, I'm going to give you an the first, we'll give you an example here of the first one out to Sherman of peak inflation. Hopeful. That's what the low question mark at the end, Sam. <laughs> and, and a somewhat timid voice too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, look, I, okay, now I'll go on my rant. So you take the Cleveland Fed, they got a now cast for inflation. They have it coming down slightly. And it's back with a nine handle by the next print. And so it's the second uh, print. And that's right in the face of when the Fed meets again. So, you know, you have this idea that inflation can roll down. But by the way, the year over year base effects are low. The roll offs of those numbers are very low coming off the books. The upside, I guess, you have to the inflation argument is gasoline prices. I read this morning, it's the 47th day in a row that wholesale gasoline prices are down. So that, you know, that's a lead lag with that. So that leads to the pump. So which leads that pressure downward for the next week or so um, on that. So ultimately that will help with some of the headline inflation, but you know, it, it's tough. So that's why I say hopeful, but uh, what does Jay do if, you know, it stays with a nine handle when he approaches the podium, you know, at the September meeting. And I think that they have to go back to the unusual 75. So um, we'll, we'll watch the data set. There's a lot of data between now and then. So that's why I do hopeful question mark in an extremely timid voice. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting uh, summer there. So they'll, I guess, uh, right around that meeting is when they'll be the official close of summer. Right. Um, but then you have the other side where like you look at the Texas grid, it's like overly taxed. It's like the highest usage you've seen. There's triple digit weather there again. It's like, I don't know. Uh, you you kind of got to juxtapose those things together. So um you know, it's the push and pull of inflation that we've seen for the last, you know, 18 months. All right, let's keep it on that theme, David, with this one to you of inflation hedge. Ooh, difficult. All right, I hear that. Uh, I always say buy, if you wanted the best inflation hedge out there, that's a good stable return. You want to own a university because the cost of tuition goes up at a similar rate every year. Don't know how to answer to it. You, you can email us at SherpaShow at DoubleLine.com if you have an answer on how to do that one. That was the old uh, Warren Buffett uh, was asked, uh, what's the best inflation hedge? And he said knowledge, right? So it's the exact same, uh, the exact same idea. Yeah, exactly. All right, Sherman, I'm going to 
work off your little question mark that you gave on that first the response to the Sherman says with Powell pivot? Debatable. As you see, I'm not a buyer. I'm a seller of the pivot at this point. Yeah, I, I tend to be on that same page there. All right, to you, David, with neutral rate of interest. Uh, gosh, uh, scary. Scarily higher. Yeah, I think higher too there. Uh, back to you, Sherman. Let me see. I, I lost my place here. Although Powell didn't seem to say that, David. Powell tried to say we're close to neutral. You said um, we're in the range of neutral. Right, right, yeah, that's true. That's Pretty true. Range. Stuff. And also, you know, but is that long term or is that contemporaneous too? Do we need to be yeah. higher in this kind of environment? So, yeah, well, we got to leave room for policy error, right? The, the, that's going to happen too. And so, yeah, scarily higher. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. Who are we on? Sherman, uh, job openings. Wow, this precipitous drop today in Jolts. Uh, it declined about 500,000 of openings. And so I, I said to the team this morning, and you saw that, Sam, is it, did they get filled or did they get killed, you know, using the old trading adage? And so, you know, uh, I guess we'll find out on Friday at part of the jobs report uh, when we see that with non-farm payrolls, which is expected to be north of 300,000. So uh, we'll have to see if, if that's, you know, definitely just, a planning pullback, um, you know, of those openings, or were they actually getting filled? And so I think it's a little column A, a little column B. So, um, you know, this is the slowdown Jay wants, though, too, right? So, again, this, this is the thing that, you know, he perversely says that he cares about the American public, but these policies are inherently to try to drive unemployment higher. Yeah, I guess the FOK in that uh, becomes the FAK then if you're doing columns A and B. There you go, fill and kill. So yes, right. So over to you, uh, David. Uh, ESG, if you want to take it, or you can pass. I don't know. Some people pass on it. Important. All right. Important. Risk assets. Important. <laughs> uh, look, we've had a great rally. You know, uh, if you own too much risk, good time to trim a little bit. Uh, make sure you're ready for this next season because I, I don't think volatility is subsiding here. And so I think got a good chance to re-sculpt a few things. If you didn't own the rally, maybe you, you don't want to be a buyer at this point. But if you're a renter, probably a good time to true up a little bit. So um, look, I, I think this is a highly correlated market right now. As we've seen, the July rally that David mentioned earlier, it was a global rally. It was a global rates rally. Spreads tightened in across most fixed income sectors. Equities did well. This is not a, a market where correlation is your friend. Everything's moving together. And you can see today on something where we're talking about inflation coming back again. You have a Fed governor out speaking. All of a sudden, bonds get hit in the U.S. pretty hard today. So, um, you know, I, I, risk goes the way rates go right now. And so, um, again, it's just going to be a little challenging. I think we got a little over our skis in, in the rate rally, and I think we're getting back to a more normal range. So we'll see uh, we'll see how vol, vol is going to be driven by inflation, as Sam, you know, I've been talking about for, for many, many months now. All right, back to you, David, with Canadian housing market. Um, precipice. I think it's an interesting, interesting time for the Canadian housing market with uh, with rates uh, where they've traveled and and uh, where they might continue to travel. So I think we're, yeah, we're starting to see a slowdown for sure. 
Hey, David, what, do you know roughly, and again, you, you can say you don't, roughly what percentage is floating rate mortgages in your country? Is it like your, the European market where it's almost predominantly that driven by that? Or do you have a fair amount of fixed rate mortgages too, where those homeowners aren't as impacted by this rate move? Uh, so anecdotally, I would say a lot of floating. Uh, okay. People have been uh, making that interest rate bet for a very long time and, and winning. Um, it's not uh, a structural so, thing. It's 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 an option, though, right? It's it's an option. Yeah, yeah. You have a choice, and so uh, I'm I'm a bit of a chicken. So I've always been a fixed rate guy myself. But uh, but a lot of folks uh, choose that variable rate because of uh, you know the secular decline in, in rates. They've been winners up until yep. now. So it's uh, yeah, it's an interesting situation. Okay. All right, Chairman, with uh, OPEC Plus. Who? Uh, you know, um, still relevant. I don't got anything clever to say, Sam. You got me. <laughs> Nobody told me that was the objective of the game. <laughs> oh, oh, Sam loves to do that to me, but um, that's just because you know we, we have too much of this. But I just don't have anything clever to say about OPEC Plus today. Yeah, I would, I would, um, say I like. I kind of know your buttons. You know, we work together too long, too too much. Uh, I know what to get some trigger words from you. So, <laughs> all right, let's go over the last one and to wrap it up, David, with Toronto Pearson Airport. Disaster. <laughs> Disaster. It's uh, yeah, not a good not a good situation there. As I you know, I would not think about traveling for vacation travel myself anytime soon because uh, I'm not the kind of guy that has the patience for uh, for what's going on there now. But uh, yeah, things like deplaning, uh, you know, people have to have to sequ sequentially do it, and it's all kind of uh, you know orderly, but I think takes a very very long time to get anywhere. Yeah, um, I've had an experience flying recently where I went to the airport and the pre-check line which is you know usually significantly shorter and it was shorter than the other line took almost one hour to get through um and the other one was taking the general line was taking close to three hours to get through so even those people who are told three hours before your flight uh obviously this was very understaffed and uh not not efficient whatsoever but people held it together so for all the horror airport stories that i've seen and, and read about uh, at least this one people are being behaved that day so I'm thankful for that. So, David, uh, really appreciate the time. It's great to see you again. I know we're not in person today, but uh, we, we will be uh, making the trek your way. So can't wait to see you in person, catch up as well. Thanks for taking the time. Again, David Wong, CIBC Asset Management. Uh, you can catch all of our podcasts on, the, on iTunes. Uh, we're on Google Play. We're on SoundCloud. Uh, we're on Spotify these days. Sam, we got anything else we're on? Some other stuff? Uh -huh. Everywhere you want it to be, or just let us know via email or the Twitter. Okay, there you go. And we're on the Twitter. As uh, Sam said, we've uh, lost a few followers last week as I looked at the numbers. Um, so sorry for whatever we said, people. I guess you won't be hearing this, so it doesn't really matter. Uh, but anyway, if you're not following us on the Twitter and you want to see recaps, uh, we put out some macro stuff as well, at Sherman Show Pod. And you can also uh, follow Sam on his other podcast which i won't promote today but sam what's the twitter handle for that other one d uh dl minutes dl minutes so so again thanks everyone thanks david for the time and we'll be back at you in two weeks with a new podcast take care all 
presentation represents DoubleMind's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without express written permission of DoubleMind. DoubleMind has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleMind, please contact media at DoubleMind.com. Neither DoubleMind nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Healthy Life 2021 DoubleLine Capital.